and welcome to Fudson Film. This is going to be the second episode of our look at the feature film work of the great Hayao Miyazaki. Last time we looked at his work up to the entertaining if bafflingly underexplained Porco Rosso. From this point we're picking up with his great Princess Mononoke. I'm Drew Tavendale, with me Mr Craig Eastman. Mm, hello! Just don't mention the hippopotamus and we'll all be fine. <laughs> and Mr. Scott Morris. Hello. I'm going to beat about the bush more. If you want to learn more about Hiro Miyazaki, listen to the first part. We think you should anyway. And let's just crack on. Okay then, Craig. Princess Mononoke. Yes, true. Princess Mononoke. Do you like demon-possessed animal gods? Who doesn't? Do you like children raised by wolves? Do you like unexpected moments of extreme violence in animations marketed ostensibly as children's films? Then you have come to the right place. Uh, 1997's Princess Mononoke is essentially an eco-awareness movie, albeit one with a great deal of ass-kicking and brutality. If you're thinking, yeah, I remember that movie, it was Steven Seagal up Michael Caine's oil rig while communing with eagle spirits or something, then let me assure you that Princess Mononoke is quite comfortably better than On Deadly Ground, and in fact one of the better Miyazaki movies in general. Young warrior Ashitaka is defending his village from an assault by demon-possessed boars when he sustains an injury that renders him partially possessed himself. Something is afoot among the animals of the forests, and Ashitaka sets out on a pilgrimage to seek the forest god who has the power to cure him. Quite apart from finding a cure, Ashitaka unwittingly ends up trapped between the two sides of a brutal war between man and nature. In the blue corner is Iron Town, lorded over by Lady Eboshi, whose exploitation of the natural resources has enraged... In the red corner, the animals of the forest. Somewhere in the middle is Jigo, a somewhat mercenary monk who seeks to bring the head of the forest god to the emperor as it promises eternal life. A popular theme with the director, Mononoke carries perhaps the most overtly environmental message of Miyazaki's films, but far from being a lecture on the rape of the natural world, it is, first and foremost, an action-adventure movie, and a fairly committed one at that. Violence and the real consequences of such, as we discussed in the last episode, have been touched on from time to time by Miyazaki, however Mononoke is the most explicit. That's not to say it's stripping in blood and gore, but there are some very definite consequences to people being hit by arrows in particular that make this a movie for an older audience than, say, my neighbour Totoro. It's by no means perfect, but Princess Mononoke remains a hugely entertaining and typically timeless effort from its director that makes a pretty exemplary job of balancing worthwhile themes with high entertainment in a mature and thoughtful way. It's also worth noting that despite being one of the earlier Disney dubs, it also remains one of the best, with an English voice cast that includes Gillian Anderson, Billy Bob Thornton and Keith David amongst others, all of whom do a fairly bang-up job of their duties. Princess Mononoke remains a firm favourite of mine, although it's going to be some time before I share it with the little ones. You're suggesting decapitation's not really a great one for toddlers. I remember watching this the first time and being somewhat caught out by, I think, the first instance of someone having both their arms shaved off at the elbows by an arrow (laughs) before the decapitation, and I remember thinking, PGI? (laughs) (laughs) I'd have forgotten quite how decapitating this film was, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's good in the way that uh, Miyazaki's films never really shy away from the consequences of violence, although they tend not to be quite so graphic as this. Yeah, not in the actual portrayal of. Yeah. I mean, you you have, by the end of this film, you have people being sort of shot point blank off their horses by uh, cannons and things, which um, Mm. I, I can't speak to the cultural differences between ourselves and the Japanese, but whether or not that's something which is more acceptable to a younger audience in Japan, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm certainly not here to judge that, but it's not something I'd feel particularly comfortable watching with younger children of a, of a Western audience. But at the same time, that's not to suggest that this is a you know an explicitly adult film. I still feel as though it has something to say to a younger audience. It's just perhaps a, you know at the slightly higher end of a younger audience than uh, some of Miyazaki's other films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think also too, look now nearly 20 years later, how violent, I guess, you'd think it's like all the comic book films are that are yeah. kids. But or, or even less, actually, I should probably I should probably temper my thoughts with, look at Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yes. As far as I recall, that remains a PG. Yes, that was an odd one, that whole heart scene. But yes, look at the, <laughs> the amount of films aimed at kids that have violence in but never really... Some of them we've touched on before, all three of us, I think, never really a lot of consequence to the violence. Mm. 
Whereas this does, and I think it's irresponsible to not show the consequence. Like, oh, people just get punched about a bit and then yeah, of maybe course, stand up. Whereas this, no, if you're violent and there's war, people die, people get hurt, and I think that's actually mm. a more responsible thing to have in a children's film. It is, it is, but not that it's easy for a kid to watch. I'm not saying that, but it's yeah, like I say, it's going to be a long time. I mean, my daughter's three years old now, and I wouldn't imagine that really you want to be showing this to a kid younger than. Well, I mean, what did they say for a 12A certificate here in the UK? That they suggest the lower end of that is what about eight or something? Yeah, seven or eight doesn't seem unreasonable. Seven or eight seems nowadays. reasonable, but considering this film's rated a PG, yeah, I wouldn't want to be showing it to kids younger than that. My concern would be, and they're fairly. I suppose they're fairly clever in the marketing of the film. It's quite subtle that a lot of the marketing revolved around this image of Mononoke standing next to her wolf mother mm. with blood smeared across her face, which should probably be some sort of hint. Yeah, it's but not hiding anything. It's not hiding anything, but it's not explicitly imparted. If you, if you were renting this film, if you were just to read the blurb on the back, you'd probably think here's a fairly innocuous film that's probably suitable for younger kids. It's a PG, but... Yeah, I wouldn't deem it suitable for a much younger audience, but I don't I don't want to dwell too long on that because it kind of detracts from the fact that this is actually just really a fantastic movie. And I think maybe the only the third Ghibli movie that I saw after Laputa and then Totoro, and it still remains an absolute favourite. I think there's a good argument that probably maybe it could do with 20 minutes shaving off the running time, but I've never grown tired of watching it. Yeah, it's a very accomplished, very mature film many ways and the characterization is some of the strongest mm. it's something that recurs in a lot of Miyazaki films that you know the villains aren't just villains they're much more complex than that and that sets it apart from so much other work and mm. Lady Eboshi in particular she's not just a, a straight up villain she's got a competing yeah it's not it's not good guys versus bad yeah, guys even nuanced it and it's that's so refreshing yeah, Especially and cartoons. the animals aren't such clear-cut good characters either. There is some sort of debate to be had there as to the intentions and the motivations of certain members amongst their ranks. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yes, it's a fairly clever film and it is obvi- quite obviously and overtly an environmental message, but it somehow manages to not be patronising about it. No, it's not heavy-handed in the way that he has maybe been a bit in others and now she is a bit more heavy-handed in that regard. There's subtlety to it, but... Yeah, just because there are, there's so many shades of grey in so many of the characters and there's people want to just attack the humans because they're humans or to protect the forest, as you say, Craig, with the animals. Then you also have, like, the forest god, the target of the assassin that's one, the, the monk, monk assassin, whatever he is, wants to take his head to the emperor. And even but that creature, is not, it's not malicious, but it's not benign either. Mm. He's dangerous and he's also the god of death as well as the god of the forest and yes. there's, there's so much depth in that, that that you can see something new every time you watch this film mm. Um, mm. and again you know, just visually it's such a beautiful film you'd want to watch it again but visually it's timeless again we've said before last episode right about how uh, lack of sort of CG augmentation or just overt use of CG aside very difficult to actually date a lot of, uh, if if not all of Ghibli's movies, certainly Miyazaki's movies. It's got a very timeless style, but a really sort of beautiful, simplistic, but, you know, not overly embellished, but very, I want to say saturated, certainly a very rich visual style mm-hmm. that makes it very difficult to pin them down to a particular era in their production. It's immensely satisfying film, just not even on a on a visual level. And I think that's one of the reasons why, I think some of the later films we'll talk about tonight, even like Spirited Away, I think visually... I find this film a stronger proposition even than something like Spirited Away, although there's a good argument to be had that Spirited Away, as we'll come to, is probably, you know, quantifiably a better film. I just think Mononoke is one of the best looking animations or one of my favourite animations from a visual standpoint that I've really seen, to be honest with you. I think possibly there's just something to do with the the forest setting. Mm-hmm. It just find it calming. I know we've talked to in the last episode as well about the fact that Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki in particular are one of those people not afraid to have quietness. Mm. And for all the spirited away, it's a truly fantastic film. Sometimes it can get a little visually busy. And mm-hmm. so it's not just an action quietness. And Princess Monolith is a visual quietness in places. Mm. And it just makes it such a rewarding place to return to. Yeah, it's one of the Ghibli films, if not the foremost of the, the Ghibli films, and certainly the Miyazaki films, where I pay a lot of attention to the background detail. Mm-hmm. As opposed to just the foreground, but again, I'll probably risk saying too much about that or or labouring a point. But yeah, I've I've just always really really loved Princess Mononoke, and it's very much like Laputa. It's one of those early ones that I came to, and it holds a very special place. I mean, you can argue that 
objectively, there are better Miyazaki and better Ghibli films, but that's not the same as saying that this is my favourite or one of my favourites from from among them. And I suspect a lot of that is just nostalgia, fondness from the fact that it's one that I came to fairly early. But uh, yeah, by any measure, I think this is a pretty strong movie. Um, I don't know about that because this is certainly one of the earliest I came to as well. And the cinema release of this was around about the time I was really beginning to become aware of Studio Ghibli. Uh, Scott, you said in the last episode too, you saw this in cinema. This would have been one of the first, if not the first, that you saw. Yeah. But then I, I didn't watch it again for, I don't know, 15 years maybe. And then watched a couple of times in the last couple of years. And I just think it's special. And I don't think it was a nostalgia thing because I'd forgotten so much about it. Mm. And it just came back and it's still a fantastic, kind of invigorating film. I wonder if I wonder if it, some of it is to do with the fact that because it's slightly slightly more adult in its theme and its depiction, that it's kind of a bridge between this. This probably sounds. I'm, I'm probably analysing this too much. Is does it perhaps act as a bridge between who we are now and who we are when we first started discovering Ghibli films? Does it sit a little bit better now in terms of how much more mature it is, or am I just am I grasping there? Uh, I don't know. I mean. When they came out, this would be already been eighteen, I guess, and I wasn't an idiot. But my critical faculties are obviously substantially more in the intervening years than they were then. But I don't know. Yeah, oh, all of which to say, I'm not sure whether I agree with you. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you haven't said much up until this point. No, I'm just enjoying the discussion. <laughs> I don't have a great deal to add. I like this a lot in, in a lot of ways. It feels to me a lot like a, a redo of Nausicaa, and I've seen it, um, but this is a bit more focused central narrative to actually hang the action on, and that is then used in service of something that's just as complex and layered, but I think hangs together far better as a film than Nausicaa did. But it's, it's ploughing a similar feel. I think that's. They're, mm. I think they're both probably pitched at about the same kind of audience maturity level, um, but this is a far better does a far better job of it. It helps that I'm a sucker for this sort of loosely samurai-era spiritual shenanigans, mm. uh, probably from a period in my formative years when Channel 4 showed a bunch of wushu films randomly, and this isn't wushu, of course, but it's in the same general area. Yes, yeah, so I, I like it. Princess Mononoke a great deal, and if you catch me on certain infrequent days and moods, I might tell you that it's my favourite Miyazaki film. Cool. It's certainly always around the table for discussion when the point is brought forward, so yes, I very much enjoy it and would recommend it to everyone. I was not expecting that. That's quite nice to hear, actually. Yeah, it's, I think it's not one of the more obvious ones that people would you'd expect people to present as a favourite. Not that you require to, of course. But no. It perhaps crops up in casual conversation about Miyazaki less than some other films, but yeah, it, it remains deeply one of the more satisfying and I think... Not just in terms thematically and content-wise, but one of the more mature, not even just the Miyazaki films, but of Ghibli's output in general, actually. But there you go. Suffice to say, if you haven't seen Princess Mononoke yet, what are you doing with your life? Yes, but to be honest, that's exactly what we're going to say about every single film we're going to talk about, apart from possibly one that you Yes, skip, that's it. Most, mostly, yeah. What, what is it you're hoping to achieve in this realm? Yes, and if it's not enjoying Studio Ghibli films, particularly those by Hayao Miyazaki, you want to rethink that sharpish. Mm. <laughs> yes. So, Princess Mononoke, at the time, one of the most successful Japanese films ever. Mm. 1997 that was, but then there was one film which really, particularly in the Western world, in mainstream West, that really put Studio Ghibli on the map. And Scott, I believe you would be the man to fill us in on that particular film. Yes, of course, we're talking about Spirited Away. Spirited Away being one of the few children films whose Wikipedia article includes the phrase emetic dumpling. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) In a similar fashion to My Neighbour Totoro, Spirited Away starts with a family relocating to a new town, although the 10-year-old Chihiro doesn't seem quite so happy about it as Satsuki and May were. Soon, how much she will miss her own classmates will seem like the least of her worries, after her parents take a wrong turn and end up in front of what they think is an abandoned shrine, or possibly an abandoned shrine theme park. I don't know if that means it was a theme park dedicated to abandoned or non-abandoned shrines in the first instance. It doesn't go into that level of detail, a rare failing in the world building of Miyazaki. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not abandoned entirely, it seems, as they stumble across a food stand and Chihiro's parents start eating indiscriminately. 
understandably a little weirded out by this whole setup and not wanting to eat randomly appearing food in defiance of everything that video games has taught us, Jihiro runs <coughs> off to find a bathhouse and an unusually large number of spirits, which is pretty much any non-zero number of spirits. Warned by a young lad named Haku to leave before she's trapped in the spirit world, she can't depart without her parents, which is unfortunate as they've been turned into pigs by the bathhouse's boss, the witch Yubaba. It is left unanswered if she was also responsible for Porco Rosso's curse. Uh, Haku, in the fullness of time, is revealed to be Yubaba's semi-willing apprentice, although he's kept under Yubaba's control by the same magic that Chihiro's about to be subject to. Chihiro begs for a job in the bathhouse as an alternative, apparently, to being eaten, and Yubaba eventually agrees, but magically takes Chihiro's name, renaming her Sen, which we're told affords Yubaba a degree of control over her. Although, despite this plot point being brought up a couple of times, I don't think it's a power that's ever actually explicitly used now I come to think about it. <laughs> but, well, there's little benefit to any of us in providing a more detailed recap of the events of the film, save saying that Haku and Chihiro must work together to outsmart Yubaba, her three bouncing heads, and a giant baby to reclaim their names, detransmogrify her parents, and escape to the boring old physical world, aided, abetted, or opposed by various members of the bathhouse staff and Yubaba's twin, Zeniba. Now, if you'd asked me before revisiting Miyazaki's body of work, I'd have said that Spirited Way was my favourite, and on balance, it probably still is. But this might be the first time I've given it a properly critical viewing, and it's not perfect. Uh, while on balance, it's the best-looking film Miyazaki's produced to this point, there's a few early experiments with CG backgrounds that jar with the rest of the film that may annoy the ultra-picky for all the three or four seconds that that's evident for. And more critically, and something that Drew alluded to a bit earlier, while this delivers a breathlessly paced narrative full of wildly inventive and wondrous set pieces enabled by the supernatural setting, it can feel a bit like a torrent of events linked and driven by a flimsy framing device. Mm. The overall drive of what needs to be done is clear, of course. We all know what the end goal is here, but the steps required to get there are informed by something closer to Lynchian dream logic than any sort of recognisable plan. Mm. However, I'll refer you back to our January 2016 episodes for details of what we think of that there Lynch fella, and none of these points have bothered me all that much. The theme of greed corrupting people is perhaps dealt with a little too square on for me, but Miyazaki's never been particularly subtle about his messaging, and I suppose that comes from aiming the film at 10-year-olds. That means that it's aimed somewhere in between the bloodbaths of Mononoke and Nausicaa and the lighter tone of the broadly similarly themed My Neighbour Totoro, and for me at least this gives Spirited Away a nylon ideal mix of wonder and danger. It perhaps goes without saying by this point that Chihiro is a well-drawn and realised protagonist, but we should allow it anyway. A good-natured mix of strength, vulnerability and determination that certainly fulfils Miyazaki's goal of creating a character that the target audience, and every other section of the audience for that matter, can look up to. Uh, the supporting cast are no less vividly created, uh, most of whom I've not even mentioned because, well, we'd be here all day, but at any point in this film there's pretty much never than less than three captivating characters on screen at the same time, which does rather make me wish that Spirited Away would get the Disney multiple spin-off treatment rather than some of the less deserving candidates that it pumped out in the bad old days of their decline. It will come, uh, I'm sure, as no great surprise to hear that I love this film. After all, it's not differing all that much from the critical reception at the time, and I don't think that time has diminished it. There's a few films jostling for top spot on my personal Miyazaki totem pole, but this is more often than not the one that ends up on top. Double plus recommended. Plus alpha. Yeah, this is the film, I suppose, when I alluded in the first part of our conversation to um, a film which I guess most people would probably consider the peak Miyazaki. I would suspect most people would point to Spirited Away. It mm. has the distinction of being the only Miyazaki film that I've seen on the big screen and one of only two Ghibli films that I've seen on the big screen. The other being Cat's Return with you at that yes. cinema in Birmingham, Scott, <laughs> which of all the Miyazaki, uh, sorry, of all the Ghibli films to see on the big screen, yes. possibly one of the least deserving. <laughs> but um, that aside, um, for that reason alone, it does have um, some sort of place in my heart. I remember at the time being really entranced by Spirited Away and thinking how deserving the sort of Oscar nomination and win, right? I think, I think it won Best Animated, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, how well deserved that was. Um, however, I haven't watched it. That was the only occasion on which I'd seen it up until recently. I hadn't actually returned to Spirited Away again, despite owning something like three different versions of it on DVD. <laughs> And coming back to it now to rewatch it for this podcast, I think maybe broadly similarly to yourself, Scott, I noticed flaws in it which weren't necessarily apparent the first time round. 
Mm-hmm. I think perhaps still thoroughly in that sort of honeymoon period, reaching, as I say, t- uh, towards peak Miyazaki and the point at which he achieved that in sync with Western audiences having somewhat caught up with the, the Ghibli phenomenon in, in general. It yeah. just seems to be, you know, that, that it, everything sort of came together in a confluence of events. Everything intersected at that point and it was kind of a perfect storm of, of love for um, Ghibli and Miyazaki. But going back to it now... It's interesting that you pointed out the sort of sense of not necessarily disassociated events, but somewhat unrelated, just a, a sort of a, a broadly speaking, a cascade of not necessarily related events following yeah. one after the other um, in terms of plot. That is something that stuck out for me this time around. And not that I didn't still thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy Spirited Away, and I wouldn't describe, I wouldn't suggest that the sheen has been taken off it for me because I still watched it with a great deal of fondness and came away with a great deal of fondness. But I was perhaps surprised at how, in my personal experience, this hasn't aged as well as some of the others. But I'm not sure why that would be and if that's just something that's particular to myself. I mean, as I say, I noticed these these things. It didn't really bother me that much, but I don't remember noticing them before. I suspect mm-hmm. it may be that I've never really sat down as a... Even though I think I did review this at some point in the... the uh, one-liner days, but I don't think I ever really properly gave it any kind of critical thought because I was just too overwhelmed by the deliciousness of it all and the, the energy and the, the vibrancy of it, which I think is still overwhelming and that's still why it works for me, mm-hmm. um, even though I can recognise that there are these things that in, that you could, in a paper exercise, kind of pick away at and I think they are less pure than some of Miyazaki's previous work. I think this is a bit busy. I think this was one yeah. of these ones, if I recall correctly, this was going to be a longer film, but it had to be cut down or uh, was in some way kind of reined back in uh, from yeah, a, a longer work. three hours, I think, in the end. Yeah. And these um, animators mm. and other writers said, can't do a three-hour film. We yeah, have to rewrite this. And I think that's part of it, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting amongst the body of Miyazaki's works that actually that's um, busies the words, um, that, and I had more of a sense of that this time watching it with that um, that distance between viewings. And I think in retrospect, actually, the quiet moments tend to stick out a little bit more jarringly for that reason. So like the mm-hmm. scene on the train and whatnot. Yeah, is the, the pace, the shift in pace from time to time is, is quite... It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily detract from enjoyment of the film, but it sticks out more than it... It certainly stands out more than it does in other films, which I think maybe that's the best way to... to um, describe it as being the less evenly paced of uh, perhaps Miyazaki's works now in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Or I could be talking nonsense. You decide. <laughs> I don't have a lot to add to what you two have said. It's it's still probably his most accomplished work. And I just almost feel bad about saying anything negative about it because yeah. I do like it a great, great deal. And it mm. does feel, at least in the neighbourhood, of nitpicking. Yeah. More just like, you know, oh, there's nothing perfect in this world. Yeah, again, it's cigarette papers, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not my favourite Miyazaki film, never was. And discussed what my favourites were last week, actually. It's still such a thoroughly rewarding watch, and it's something that anybody interested in this should see, although I wouldn't suggest, even though it's probably, at least subjectively, his best film, probably not the first thing that people should watch, though. Mm-hmm. And you need to work up to Spirited Away. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's still a fantastic film. And <laughs> then maybe the... One common theme through these podcasts is largely we don't have a great deal negative to say about anything he's made. No. But I don't want it to be a hagiography or anything. It's just that he does, because he puts so much preparation into these films, so much care that's sorely missing when you look at any contemporaries or many people have come before him too. It's like the level of care and attention to detail in all his works, and this is maybe the, the pinnacle of that, just makes it stand out above anything else. Yeah. I guess it's one of these benefits of owning a studio is that you don't have to do one for the studio. <laughs> you know? I think that helps. When you're the boss, you get to say what Yeah, goes. when you are yeah. the studio, yeah. you're always doing one for yourself. <laughs> I want to say there's an argument to be made that Spirited Away perhaps is like the strongest opening act of any of the Miyazaki films. And in that opening act does more successfully to convey that notion of magical realism than some of the other movies but I feel like certainly in its middle section that things become quite muddled a little bit confused and perhaps that is an editing issue if you say um, which I wasn't aware that this originally had been intended as a as a much longer film and obviously some sacrifices has 
had to yeah. have been made there. Um, I think it was less intended, Craig, more than that the story you wanted to tell would have needed to have been three hours. Mm. And then mm. like, we can't do that. We can't make a three-hour film. Um, yeah. Is, is this the Miyazaki film that would have worked better as an HBO three-part special or something? I still think that's now shook up because that's still it's, it's such a big yeah, actually, not, yeah. where nothing is explained. But mm. yeah, maybe it suffers a little for having to have been, had its scope contracted so much. Mm. Still fantastic. <laughs> ah, exactly. Yeah, I'd still take this over it. most other films any old day of the week. Okay then, so a few years after Spirited Away and its win of the Academy Award for animation, Miyazaki did something that's relatively unusual in his career and adapted someone else's work. In this case, Howl's Moving Castle. Young milliner Sophie lives in a fairly quiet life in a turn of the 20th century European city. Harassed in an alley one evening by some soldiers, she's rescued by a dashing and mysterious young wizard named Howl, who is rumoured, as these things tend to go, to eat the hearts of beautiful young maidens. In fact, it is Howl's heart that is desired, and the minions of the evil Witch of the Waste observe his encounter with Sophie, leading to a jealous witch cursing Sophie and turning her into a 90-year-old woman, with the added kicker that she's unable to tell anyone of her curse. Sophie leaves behind the city and her mother and sister and sets off into the waste to search for Hyle's castle and she hopes a cure. After aiding a cursed scarecrow she dubs Turnip Head, she encounters the castle and quickly establishes herself as part of Hyle's retinue. With a thirst for cleaning that causes much consternation to Hyle, his young servant Markle and the fire demon Calcifer, Sophie begins to grow fond of the other members of this erstwhile family, particularly of the mercurial, vain and powerful Hyle. She sees that he too hides from the world and also that he is at heart a better person than he thinks he is or perhaps wants to be. Having fallen in love with him, she agrees to go in his stead to the royal palace and plead with Madame Suleiman to bring an end to the destructive war that this country and their neighbour are engaged in and in which Howell is being forced to participate. This is not received well and Sophie, Howell and a couple of unexpected additions soon find themselves on the run from Suleiman's armies. While fleeing, Sophie discovers the past of Howell and Calcifer how and why they are bound, and ultimately saves them all, and, wouldn't you know it, ends the war, however inadvertently. Not bad for a 90-year-old, huh? Fueled by his anger over the US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, Howell's moving castle carries a strong anti-war message. In fact, he has stated that he intentionally set out to make a film that US audiences would not like, or at least (laughs) find uncomfortable. The irony being it was incredibly successful in the United States. (laughs) Many have criticised Miyazaki's simplistic anti-war stance in Howl's Moving Castle as being war is bad, war is idiocy, and it robs us of our humanity. No. Yeah. <laughs> yes, what a, what a mixed message yes. that is. Yes. Now, while this film may lack the nuance that, for example, <laughs> Princess Mononoke has in its approach to war and its acknowledgement of the competing pressures and motivations of those involved... I have precisely zero issue with Howell's message. No. (laughs) Who was critiquing it thus? Dick Cheney. (laughs) Because war is bad, war is idiocy, and it robs us of our humanity. And even the most gifted and intelligent here, Madam Suleiman, sometimes are incapable of seeing it. I'm just imagining Dick Cheney doing a movie podcast now. Two thumbs down, Dick Cheney. (laughs) (laughs) Not enough Halliburton. Okay, one of the main themes, and quite an uncommon one in animation or elsewhere really, and particularly Studio Ghibli, with its preponderance of youthful protagonists, is that of the acceptance of old age and the freedom it can potentially offer. To Sophie and others, youth can be a burden, not knowing your place in the world, what you should or could do with your life. Having never considered herself attractive, becoming an old woman seems to have removed that stress from her, and Sophie also seems in some ways to have relaxed and found a more comfortable place in the world. A more common Miyazaki theme is here, despite his anti-war anger, and that is that humans are essentially good, or are certainly capable of being so, and that devotion, selflessness and compassion save ourselves while helping others. Sophie certainly has every reason to treat the Witch of the Waste poorly, but chooses not to do so. It's the sort of thing we all hope ourselves capable of, the sort of response that augments one's soul, rather than impoverishes or decays it. And it's one of the reasons that Miyazaki's films are so uplifting. It has been said that Howl's Moving Castle is Miyazaki by numbers and displays less of his personality than his other works. Some of that may be due to this being an adaptation of a Western novel, by British novelist Diana Wynne-Jones in this case, but I'm not entirely sure that I'm on board with that. 
That said, even Miyazaki by numbers is orders of magnitude better than almost anything else that you could name. And it certainly has most of what you'd expect from Miyazaki. A strong female protagonist, magic, flight, villains who aren't really villains, or at least don't remain that way, strange creatures, a refusal to explain the world in which the film is set, and the animation. Always the animation. The centrepiece is, as it ought to be, the titular castle. A fantastical construction of turrets and windows and pipes and domes, like some sort of steampump Baba Yaga's hut, complete with mechanical chicken legs. Then there are the settings. Sophie's hometown, modelled on the northwestern French town of Colmar. The palaces and buildings of the capital that bring to mind Versailles and maybe London and Paris. The flying machines. Howl's monstrous transformations. The subtle, and not so subtle, changes in how Sophie is drawn, as her inner age is reflected on her exterior. The sheer fluidity of transformation in both shape and place. All beautiful, all wonderful. Yes, it's not Miyazaki's strongest work, but it's still thoroughly bloody lovely and definitely stands up to repeat viewing. I actually watched this in Spanish three nights ago and found it the most enjoyable time yet. Make of that what you will. No, really, make of that what you will, because I have no idea what to make of it. (laughs) There is only one Miyazaki film I simply did not enjoy. This is not that. So watch this. I think the only thing that annoyed me, well, it was two things that annoyed me at the time when I watched it back in its cinematic release, which was that I was not then, and I am not now, super clear on why her heroine's made an old woman, or why the age appears to vary independently of her mood or actions or anyone's perception of her. Um, I <laughs> might have missed something the man pig. There, but, yeah, <laughs> the man pig reads inversion. Uh, but I think this may be the first time that I saw a Miyazaki film originally in dubbed form. I'm pretty sure I saw Mononoke as a, a Japanese language release in one of the smaller artsier places in Edinburgh where I could get away with that kind of thing. Ooh. But I know I watched Howl's Moving Castle first dubbed. Yeah, you watched it with uh, me because I yeah. remember Billy Crystal kind of being a bit of an irritation in it. Yeah, and Oh my it, God, Billy Crystal's... Billy Crystal's yeah. Castle for... It's one of these things that I think on paper looks to be an incredibly great cast for the voice of the uh, of acting in this, mm-hmm. but I don't think they really pulled it off very well. There's a bunch of awkward performances I remember at the time and where I kind of dipped in and out of it when I was rewatching it here. And that kind of still stands. Primarily Christian Bale, who, much as I love him, doesn't do a particularly great job as Howell, as far as I can tell. Uh, I mainly watched the subtitle version when I was watching it for this podcast, and I was surprised to find that I enjoyed it quite a lot more than I did on original viewing. Um, I was a little bit underwhelmed by the cinematic release. Not hugely underwhelmed, of course, it's still Miyazaki films, so it's still mm-hmm. very good, but um, I did find it a much more enjoyable experience when I didn't have to deal with Christopher Bale's weird laugh. Uh, yeah, there's also, <laughs> I have heard that um, a lot of Japanese speakers, like Japanese people perhaps have said that the voice acting in the Japanese is much closer to the tone of the characters than the English dub is. I suspect that makes a big, big difference. I can't really speak with any uh, truth to that because I didn't I don't understand Japanese, but it felt a lot more organic when I watched it this time. It didn't feel as forced in certain areas than it did when I was watching the uh, dubbed version, if that makes any kind of sense. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite a Damascene conversion, but I certainly enjoyed this in awful lot more in the subtitled version than I did when I watched the dubbed version and uh, I would it, it moved up quite substantially in the Miyazaki lead table partly for all the reasons you described which won't go over again but primarily it's just such a beautiful looking film mm-hmm. incredible animation as I say I'm, I'm not overly clear on what the point of it was um, obviously apart from the, the anti-war message but there's the theme of being old and then not being old depending on what a witch does, does not seem to be the strongest. Um, and that also feels to me more like it's kind of the idea perhaps of you're as old as you feel, that sort of thing. And then sort of a youthful spirit was kind of being shown through the changes in her body or physical appearance. But I may be wrong. That would seem a weird thing for an evil witch to do. <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't particularly know why, apart from plot expediency, she shows up at Versailles and says, I would like a hat. No, we're closed. I'm turning you into an old lady. Bang. And that's because she's jealous because her minions were following Howl and saw him with this young woman and she's obsessed with Howl and wants his heart. That's why. So she, her minions, the kind of black amorphous inky blob things in the suits told her who Howl had helped and that's why she went to confront her to see who she was. And then she says, get out of my shop. She's like affronted. So decides to curse her. We've all been there. 
Yeah. She's an evil witch, Scott. She doesn't need a great deal more motivation than that. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember uh, in the last episode saying that there was only one Miyazaki film that I hadn't seen, and I realised there are two, because as it turns out, I was mistaking this with Tales from Earthsea, which of course isn't a, a Hayao Miyazaki yeah. film, it's uh, his son Goro. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how that's happened. But out in our garage, I found, as I've been clearing out the garage in preparation for the sale of our house, the other day I found a pristine shrink-wrapped copy of Howl's Moving Castle on DVD, which I purchased when it first became available. <laughs> and it's been kicking about the right time. So I promise you I will rectify that. But uh, yes, as for speaking to this film here and now, I cannot facilitate that in all good conscience. What's quite interesting though too is that House Moving Castle is actually Miyazaki's own favourite Miyazaki film. Is it? Yeah, he's what he said, described it as his favourite and also said, I wanted to convey the message that life is worth living and I don't think that's changed. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the creator's own preference has any effect on anybody else watching it. Isn't it interesting yeah. to find it one that a lot of people think has less of his personality than many is the one that the personality that created it likes most mm. I mean having not seen this film I still feel quite confident in saying that he's wrong <laughs> um, well having said that again we've said we've spoken over these uh, two episodes about uh, films of his which are our favourites though which is not necessarily the same thing as acknowledging which are at a, a, an objective level the best in terms no, best of best and favourite two very different yeah, things exactly so he's allowed a favourite as well um, but with the caveat that yes he's wrong <laughs> get back in your box Miyazaki so we're nearing the end of Miyazaki's directorial output thus far although with Miyazaki going in and out of retirement much like a jack in the box who like. knows what's still to come but move to his penultimate one thus far and that is 2008's Ponyo which Mr Eastman is going to bring us up to speed on yes Ponyo <laughs> uh, yeah, 2008's Ponyo um, One fateful morning, five-year-old Sasuke Who lives with his mother in a small fishing town While his father works at sea Finds a strange goldfish trapped in a bottle by the rocks Naming the goldfish Ponyo Sasuke attempts to care for her But soon learns that she is in fact one of the many offspring Of a powerful wizard and the goddess of the sea Ponyo longs to be human But in forming a relationship and falling in love with Sasuke Disrupts the balance of nature Threatening environmental devastation Ponyo's father desperately seeks to recapture his wayward daughter For the sake of both the human and the natural realms But at what cost to the young friends If the notion of a love story between a five-year-old boy and a fish Strikes you as a somewhat bizarre <laughs> A somewhat bizarre plot device You'd be half right But this is Miyazaki And somehow the director manages to make this potentially unsettling setup Sweet, innocent and oddly relatable in a way It's hard to imagine many others could manage mm. The relationship between Sasuke and Ponyo is a wonderful thing to behold And at no point does it feel exploitative or in fact all that odd As the film is carried along on a metaphorical and wave of fantastical character and subtle emotion. It's one of those instances of something looking absolutely mental on paper, but on screen it just works in a way that somehow elicits unquestioning audience acceptance, unless of course you're some sort of heartless monster. I came to Ponyo very late in the day, in fact within the last year or so actually, um, and again, uh, not to labour point, but as a film which I thought would be suitable for my little girl. And the closest comparison I would draw would be with, I think, Totoro, in that sort of thematically and in terms of content and even action to an extent, it's quite a slight film, but I don't say slight in a dismissive way. It's still a wonderful, captivating, fantastical tale that succeeds on the strength of its characters and, most importantly, I think it's heart. But it is one of those Miyazaki films which is probably, I think, more suitable for a younger audience and mm. that perhaps adult audiences might not find as engaging as some of his other yeah. works that we've spoken about. But again, that's not to detract from it. It's still a fantastic work. It's still beautifully animated and beautifully realised and I've enjoyed watching it a great deal although perhaps bizarrely of all the films we've watched so far there's there's a certain part in this film which inexplicably freaks my little girl out and she can't watch it <laughs> so I'm not even sure I would say that it's in the top half of the Miyazaki roll call but again you're 
sort of splitting hairs when it comes to drawing distinctions between most of his body of work in terms of in terms of enjoyment and yeah. uh, and craft so that is by no means damning it with faint praise it's still a wonderful wonderful film with a quite magical level of imagination and i certainly can't recommend that nobody watch it but i would suggest that it might not necessarily be at the top of your list i don't know i would be quite happy to put it near the top of my list but then again i'd more or less put all of them near the top of my list which makes the list idea of a list kind of redundant i know where you're coming from you say it's slight and certainly it has the same traits and maybe criticisms that you can level other films to maybe uh, slight is not the word maybe innocence Maybe, maybe. I think there's an innocence about it. Yeah, because it's not a love story in that way. It's like a... Yeah. It's it's the Little Mermaid, but with kids, and it's a sweeter, mm. innocent love, not anyway an adult or even adolescent love. It's not that sort of Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely the key to it. It's very, very innocent. It's, again, mm. as it, like I said, it's on, on paper. It almost sounds abhorrent, right? But it's actually, it's a very, very innocent thing. And I think I think the key is it's one of his films which, like Totoro, it doesn't necessarily set out to hammer home a particular message. I said, that's one thing I say, maybe there is a, the environmental message again, this is quite mm. strong in the, um, her father, who is a human, but like despises what humans have done to the world, whereas the her mother, the goddess of the sea, is... Um, more forgiving i mm. think getting more powerful yet also more kind at the same time mm-hmm. uh, and then it's got a lot of stuff in common with a lot of myth- different mythologies around the world actually so yeah maybe yeah slight or innocent yes and i think it's possible that the, the environmental message is a little heavy-handed in there the thing is that's what you get with miyazaki so if it bothers you i think it's always going to bother you mm. I've mentioned it a few times that it doesn't really bother me. And some days wish maybe just take an edge off it slightly. But yeah. yeah, it's just so sweet. And really, I would put it near the top just because I just found it so delightful and charming. This is another one I did manage to see in the cinema. Yeah. And just walked at the cinema with a, a massive grin in my face. It sweeps you along. You just yeah. accept what it presents you. You don't really stop to question any of the stuff. And I think that's always the mark of a good piece of filmmaking is that as outlandish as some of the setup may be, as fantastical as it may be, if you sit there and find yourself after 90 minutes going, that was great, and not having really stopped to consider, it's about a five-year-old boy who's in love with a fish, (laughs) right? Then, you know, at some point you have to acknowledge it's doing something very, very right. And it's all very, it's all very subtle. It's not really overt in anything it does. Even in terms of like visual style, Mm -hmm. it's got... In a lot of instances, it's a very, it has overall maybe a deceptively simple visual um, style compared to some other Miyazaki stuff. You know, it's not quite as rich in terms of background design in a lot of cases, especially Ponyo herself as a character is actually a fairly simply drawn character. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it's incredibly deceptive in that way. It's, um, I'm not sure. I'm sure there must be a purpose to that by design, but I'm not entirely sure what that purpose would be. I've not really stopped to ponder over it that much because it is just a sweet film that exists as a thing, very much like Totoro. It is it is what it is. It tells a, a charming, captivating story that kind of surprises with how much you are willing to go along with it as an audience member. And it's just a lovely piece of work. Yeah, it's so sweet and innocent. And it has other things in common with... Uh, my neighbour Totoro in particular too and it's like there's this kind of magical thing happening and this wee boy seeing this thing it's like oh it's a little girl that's a fish Mm. and he saw he knows it's a fish and then he sees her and sort of when she uses her magic she becomes a bit more fish-like and less Mm human-like he's five he doesn't know that's not normal and he just accepts it but at the same time the adults in the film see all these magical mystical things and they're like okay then I'm going Mm. along with this and that's his apart from what well, just Miyazaki's work in general. It's apart from so many other things where the adults would be denying things even when it's in front of their eyes. And I kind of like that everybody just gets caught in it, although it mm. may seem weird as it might seem that they just accept these things. And yeah, it's just so sweet natured. And also, I, I find it impossible to watch this and not spend at least the next three days just um, randomly going, ham! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that really sticks in my head. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yes, of course. That's one of the defining characteristics of the little fish girl turned into human. Yeah. Loves some pork. <laughs> this film rekindled my love affair with ham. <laughs> Two thumbs up. Yeah. The only thing that I don't like about this film again comes back to the the dub i've seen the english dub mm. 
twice, I think. Um, it's the it's the most impressive cast list. I would yeah, like no, to see the headliner list, but you've got Liam Neeson, and I don't know. Again, maybe it's because of, or maybe just the people that got directing them aren't doing a good job. Or mm. as I mentioned in the last episode, whether yeah. they record differently, they record separately. But Liam Neeson in particular is so so flat. Yeah, and it it just takes an edge off, which is why. I mean, I know there's something to be said for the fact that if you watch a film in a language you don't understand, you don't know if people are acting badly or not. Mm. But when you hear like the cadences of speech and the, the emotion in speech, it feels so different to hear the Japanese original. It's, yeah. It feels it feels more right. I didn't I didn't find Liam Neeson as perhaps as egregious as maybe you suggest or as off I, I thought his performance was all right. I don't think it's the worst that I've I've heard in any of the Disney dubs by a margin. But I do find myself questioning. Why Matt Damon was brought aboard to play Suzuki's father when he has something like a total of six words throughout <laughs> the entire film. On two occasions he shouts, Suzuki, are you all right? From his boat. And then that's pretty much it. Um, and considering the billing that he's given, it's a little bit disingenuous to suggest that this is a film that will, you know, feature in any significant way the voice <laughs> talents of Matt Damon. But, you know, it's certainly an impressive enough cast list on paper. But yeah, it's not the strongest of dubs by uh, yeah. by a certain margin. And you have um, Cloris Leachman and Betty White as the old women. They mm. work quite well. But yeah, they do. Kate Blanchett as the sea gods. And like, that's not good because she's Kate Blanchett and she's generally terrible, mm. <laughs> regardless of the award she garners. But yeah, again, if you are an English speaker and have kids that want to see this, you don't have a great deal of choice. Mm. And it's not by any means terrible. But if you, once again, I advocate for watching this in the original language if you're able to. Mm-hmm. But Scott, you haven't told us what do you think of this. Well, it's just a timeless story, isn't it? Boy meets magic fish, magic fish drinks human blood, magic fish is recaptured by. Father's magic submarine, magic fish becomes human. Fish-human hybrid escapes magic submarine and is reunited with boy amid a backdrop of a falling moon and the reappearance of the long extinct giant sea creatures. I've said it before and I'll say it again, Scott. Tales We've all been there. So tell us all this time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really disagree with anything you're saying. I, I probably lean closer to what Craig's suspecting. I, I don't... I think this is clearly targeted audiences much younger than... Well, I mean, you could say that about every film. Every Miyazaki film we've seen is targeted at an audience much younger than I was at the time that I saw it. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think the Delta was greatest when I first saw Ponyo. Uh, and yeah. it does feel like it's very clearly more at the kind of five to ten year olds than it is anyone else. And it's the one that I can connect with least. Yeah. Which is not to say that it's not an, an, an enjoyable and it's a fun, innocent experience. And I, I, I enjoy it. Uh, it's exceptionally pretty, but... I just don't really find a lot of the characters relatable in the way that I do with a lot of other Miyazaki's other work. Notwithstanding what you said earlier, Drew, I do feel it would, it would make a little bit of sense if one adult just sort of acknowledged, this is a bit strange, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. This doesn't normally happen on a Thursday. Yeah. Um, I appear and, to have imbibed a great deal of hallucinogenics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a certain psychotropic element to today. I can't quite put my finger on it. Perhaps it's the talking waves. <laughs> yes, uh, but it's that's not really the, the crux of this story, so I will forget that. And um, yeah, as you say, it's a very, very innocent film and just an innocent, charming central story, and it's very well worth watching for that basis alone. It looks very pretty, and yes, what more do you want from a film? It's still going to comfortably be in the top half of films you're going to watch in any given year. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, though. So, Ponyo, undeniably one of those films, along with most of Miyazaki's work that has been aimed at an under 10 audience, I guess, is the primary audience, but by no means the only. But we move forward then to the, really the only other film, along with Porco Rosso, that Miyazaki more or less made for Miyazaki and made for adults. Now, Scott, I think you can tell us whether or not that was a successful move. Yes, uh, with The Wind Rises. Uh, now, lads, I've noticed something as we've gone back over Miyazaki's films. You know, uh-huh. Prepare to have your minds blown. He's super into aviation. Now, I'll just mm. let that no, 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 sink in for a bit. I'm just um, doing mental accounting. It's like, it's like um, the scales have fallen from your eyes, isn't it? Wow, yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like there's flying stuff in in everything. <laughs> Every single film. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so, 
Because that's my mind blown. <laughs> uh, so perhaps the greatest tip off of this attitude is, of course, The Wind Rises, which appears to be a film made purely so Miyazaki could draw aeroplanes for a while. Um, <laughs> in a wildly condensed nutshell, it tells the story of Japan's aeronautics industry as it matures from being well behind the curve at the end of World War One to creating arguably the most advanced warplanes by the middle of World War II. This is played out in front of the eyes of Hiro Horikoshi, uh, initially a youngster dreaming of becoming a pilot before turning his attention to the design of them instead. We follow him through his university stint, then his career at Mitsubishi where his talent and dedication eventually sees him rising to become director of the programme that eventually produced the feared Zero fighter plane. Mixed amongst this broadly accurate biography are a number of wildly fictional scenes. <laughs> in particular, his dream conversations with Italian aeroplane designer Giovanni Battista Caproni, and rather more surprisingly, his relationship and eventual marriage to Naoko Kasutomi, a relationship unfortunately doomed by Naoko's uh, tuberculosis. Now, allow me to say this up front, because I'm finding it difficult to analyse much of this film without sliding into snark. This was my first viewing of the film, a couple of days back, and I enjoyed it well enough. It's one of Miyazaki's best-looking films. It held my attention well enough to recommend that anyone who liked any of Miyazaki's other works should, at some point, see this. I certainly did not like it enough to recommend that everyone put it to the top of their watch list, nor was my attention held well enough for my mind not to continually wander back to the central point of who is the audience for this film. Uh And on reflection, I think the answer to that is Hayao Miyazaki. (laughs) And if anyone else comes along for the ride, that's a bonus. There's certainly undercurrents on display here that's more of a reflection of Miyazaki's now reneged stated intent to retire after this <laughs> film's released, with some, again, quite on the nose reflections of the protagonist about dreams not quite realised. But there's a melancholy to it all that comes across as a little bit self-indulgent, particularly given the very real achievements of both Hirokoshi and Miyazaki. Also, having no particular knowledge of Hirokoshi's life beforehand, I was perplexed indeed to find out that this relationship angle was a complete fiction, <laughs> and I've yet to work out what the greater point of bashing this particular lie in with the broadly factual accounts was, unless it's just as a route one way to introduce a bit of emotional heart to the piece, which seems like an uncharacteristically easy out given Miyazaki's track record. The Wind Rises is, for me, at least the the least enjoyable of Miyazaki's films, and while I'm slightly perturbed by my inability to even grasp what he was aiming for here, I don't think that even where that door of perception opened for me, I'd think a great deal more of the film. There is, as it turns out, a great deal more to filmmaking than being really, really, really ridiculously (laughs) good-looking. Catch it at some point, but not as a priority. Yeah, yeah, this is one that I've only actually seen once now. And I think probably that's the only Miyazaki film that that's the case for. And I, I pre-ordered this on Blu-ray when it was going to be released in this country a couple of years ago. Really eagerly anticipated it. It was absolutely showered with superlatives at the time. People were calling it the greatest animated invention of our Miyazaki's masterpiece, that sort of thing. And then it's okay, oh great, I'm really looking forward to this. And I sat down and it's genuinely the only Miyazaki film I don't like. Yes, it's beautiful, but... The one and only time I've watched so far, that was largely all it had going for me because it bored me. And I was almost devastated by that because the one thing that a Miyazaki film is not going to do is in any way bore me. And it did. And it's so disappointing. Yes, I didn't actually know that that relationship was a fiction, Scott. I not had enough interest to look into the backstory of it so much. And yes, I mean, I think maybe there's something of a an interesting story in there of interest and not just Hayao Miyazaki and yes it's a lovely lovely looking film but I didn't really see what the point was and I just didn't find the character compelling in any way it's it's just a great great disappointment I think broadly I would uh, I would agree I don't think this is your entry point to Miyazaki oh definitely Um, if you're if you're coming to uh, Ghibli uh, General Cole this is this is probably at the bottom of your list Um, it's the first of his films that I felt overtly didn't seek any element of a younger audience necessarily and in that respect I can understand it's maybe more you know the most personal of his of his films and a film that as you say feels most definitely like it was designed to appeal to Hayao Miyazaki it's not that I didn't enjoy it, but I would describe it as the film of his which I felt least engaged with or most frequently disengaged from. 
in that I very much like you guys, I only have watched this film once. Like you, Scott, it was just a few days ago that I came to it for the first time where the great burden of expectation, as you pointed out, Drew, I've had it kicking around for quite some time, never got round to watching it. And, and not that I had built it up massively in my mind. I always take that kind of praise with a, a pinch of salt. But yeah, it felt, I'm not entirely sure what the word is, there's, there's less of an element of the fantastical about it. And I wonder if, I wonder if Miyazaki's weaknesses in dealing with the reality rather than the, the fantasy of subjects. But suffice to say, this is the first film where I've caught myself, of Miyazaki's where I've caught myself zoning out. Having said that, I mean, I have previously felt the same way about films such as The Conversation, which I now consider to be one of my favourite films of all time because I gave it the benefit of repeat viewing. And I wonder if upon repeat viewing, this film's not going to be more of a slow burn and less immediately engaging as it is than a lot of his other works. However, the problem I have is that I don't feel the compulsion to go back and revisit it any time soon yeah, that I have yeah. done with some other films that have turned out to be slow burns with me. And I'm not sure what that, you know, certain je ne sais quoi is it's uh, missing, that it's looking for. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something about it which just doesn't click into gear necessarily. Not that that's necessarily a fault, because not all Miyazaki films need follow a particular pattern or follow any particular sort of design ethos or even be conceived in the same vein but this perhaps least of all shares the dna of uh, of his other films and i don't want to say i was disappointed by it just less engaged i think I think very much it's a film that has no hook to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's nothing to really drag you into this unless you happen to be particularly big into Japanese aeronautics of the era. Mm. I can't see why I would want to come back to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only theme that I can pick out is, sort of, as mentioned, the sort of life's work gone somewhat unrealised kind of themes that are running mm-hmm. through parts of it. But that's kind of a, a relatively subtle undercurrent, certainly as far as Miyazaki's normal themes would <laughs> theme treatments go. And the bulk of it is just not all that interesting. It's not that the, the lead character, Jiro's life, is uninteresting, but it's not particularly remarkable. I mean, essentially, oh. it's him designing planes. Yeah. And yeah. it's hard to make that particularly riveting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, and there's certainly some interest to be had in the idea of watching someone gifted to do a thing well. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, this film just doesn't seem to be it. And certainly in Japan in particular, that's an interesting time period. And mm. which Studio Ghibli has actually covered before because Grave of the Fireflies is one of the most heartbreaking films I've ever seen. Mm. Um, and it's and how. <laughs> <laughs> yes, try watching that with dry ice. And, you know, so there's so much going on in that country, in that area at that time. And I mean, almost like there's the some effects of the war that take place in this film, but it almost seems detached from that and mm. happening rather in spite of it. And yeah. I don't know maybe it'd been more successful if that had tied in a bit more. And yes, I'll probably watch it again. Uh, I didn't have time to watch it again before this podcast. And uh, but like you, Craig, and I'm not rushing out to do it. Yeah. It's like you say, it's, uh, one has to wonder because the way in which it avoids dealing with what you would imagine would be the pressing issues of that period mm-hmm. seems so overt that that in itself you would imagine is making some sort of statement it has to be intentional right mm-hmm. that he didn't engage with with those things but again i'm not sure what that would be in service of it's the thing that lacks the more i think about it the thing that lacks for me with this movie is that miyazaki's fascination with flight has always struck a chord with me because in his other films it meshes with the idea of the fantastical. He seems to be, he's always at his best when he's working with the more fantastical and, you know, the notion of flight and flying machines as an extension of that. It brings out and embellishes the sort of the the romanticism of flight, right? Whereas there's an element of that here, but in lacking the fantastical and being just, you know, more of a... It's like it's a personal passion project. Yeah, yeah, it's missing some element from that. It's the first time that I've watched one of his films where I haven't found myself 
This is going to sound absolutely weird, but I haven't imagined myself piloting any of those flying machines, right? <laughs> any of his other films, I've imagined myself in the cockpit of every single flying machine in those films, and it's taken me on an absolute flight of fancy, and it's really engaged with my own fascination with the romanticism of, of flight. Um, yeah, but Even in his other film, it's got a similar sort of theme um, and similar sort of obsession of, you know, why for pig? Yeah, it's called. Uh, yeah, discussed in the yeah. last episode, and I do want to see it again at some point because really the superlatives that were coming out of it. I don't know if it's mm. because people, oh, it's Miyazaki's last film, and we have to say this, but you saw people saying things like it's the greatest animated film ever. And I'm well, not, that's clearly that's mental. Just a mental thing to say. Yeah, but, um, I don't know. It's it's such a weird film too because Miyazaki's such a pacifist. And he was quoted as saying, let me just read this out here. Miyazaki said he had very complex feelings about World War II since, as a pacifist, he felt militarist Japan had acted out of foolish arrogance. However, Miyazaki also said that the Zero represented one of the few things we Japanese could be proud of. The Zeros were a truly formidable presence, and so were the pilots who flew them, but they flew them to kill people. Like yeah, they flew them in service of something heinous. Yeah, it's like a bit of cognitive dissonance going on there inside Miyazaki, and it's like he's just so obsessed with flight that he's putting that aside i don't know it's it's a strange film and it's not bad but for a film from that studio from that director to mm. bore me that's i wonder if this is i wonder if we if we had the chance to converse with a japanese audience i wonder if we'd come to the realization that i uh, maybe this is the film of his which culturally represents the biggest gulf between east and west and that perhaps that is a uniquely uh, Japanese thing that to understand what he's trying to achieve with this and separating the achievement of the machine from the intention and the application of the machine. Maybe, Maybe. we in the West have a, you know, understandably have a different perspective on that that is more difficult for us to bridge. Maybe that's why. And maybe as a, you know, maybe a, a native Japanese audience would find that easier to get on board with and appreciate having, you know, having to wrestle with the, you know, their, the, you know, the conscience of history in that respect, maybe we'd be more willing to get on board with the idea of, okay, well, let's actually celebrate the achievement of this thing and salvage what pride we can from a situation which was just a, you know, a dire, a dire, dire situation to be in, um, and where we were being led in a, a, a pretty abominable direction. We still, as a people, had the minds and the you know facilities to produce great feats of engineering i kind of get that and i've probably just completely over <laughs> over analyzed that but I, I suspect i wouldn't be surprised to find out that this is the film but in which there is probably the biggest gulf in perception between eastern and western audiences does that make sense it's possible though i you saying that this maybe come back to the fact that and again i don't know how accurate this impression is or whether things are different now but the way it's always been presented to us in the West is that Japan never owned its um, World War II behaviour in the way that, say, Germany did. Mm. It generally basically wears it on its um, arms to make sure there's no repeat. Mm. Whereas the Japanese were known for being vicious and cruel and that them not owning that makes that a completely different um, way to look at it from their point of view. You know, the opposite from the way you're thinking maybe, but... I don't know. Um, mm. Again, maybe possibly reading too much into this in particular animation, which may just be as simple as this guy really likes planes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suspect that wraps it up then. You have anything more to add to the wind rises, Scott? Not to that, no. Okay, then perhaps you can add uh, some of the feedback we've had on the Twitters. Yes, yeah, so a few things on the old Twitters. Uh, first off, thanks to the Magic Lantern cast for getting the word out on the podcast. Uh, again, this. Leslie Tavendale, I don't know if anyone knows who that is. <laughs> Drew's nieces love Totoro, they get very giggly throughout the film, and they love the same bit as Craig's daughter. That's the, so that's good to know that uh, your daughter's not uh, not alone hearing voices. <laughs> yeah, that's quite reassuring. That <laughs> uh, was backing up a little of what we said there, the, the, the kids adore Ponyo as well, especially the five-year-old. Uh, she gets very excited when she sees Ponyo change into a human, and it's a lovely film. More generally, Miyazaki is a godfather of Japanese animation. A Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke are both epic fairy tale fantasies and both are mesmerising. Yeah, certainly agree with that. Matt Toller, at M. Toller on the Twitters. Mononoke was his first Miyazaki film and he sees Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle as a sort of alternate world trilogy, less sentimental. I especially love Spirited Away. It's a near-perfect blend of Miyazaki themes and its own dash of weirdness. Just needs some weird planes and sky pirates, so... Very much agree with that. 
and Howl's Moving Castle is a little bit just a reshuffling of said themes, but even in its redundancy, I'd watch it over 90% of anything else. I think that's a, a theme we've come back to many times. Uh, yeah. Even the worst Miyazaki film is better than most other people's works. <laughs> that's certainly something that's quite remarkable. Mm. And he also recommends that if you want to continue the general theme of great animation from Japan, we may enjoy the wings of... Yeah, uh, wings of mayonnaise, I think that yeah. is. Wings of Horonese. Uh, it's not Miyazaki, but it's got similar themes of maturity, responsibility, uh-huh. wonder, and yes, craft. And yes. craft. And a film, a film which I saw a long, long time ago, that was at the sort of spearhead of the first wave of the manga label and whatnot. And it's kind of been a bit forgotten about now, but yeah, it's a good call, actually. I would recommend that if you haven't seen it already. It's um, perhaps a more evocative example of that type of work. Although not, ex- you know, um, explicitly in the same... Absolutely the same vein. If you are, mm. yeah, if you have dreams of flight and the romance of flight, then it's uh, it's a, it's the closest thing to sort of an animated the right stuff. Is <laughs> <laughs> perhaps what I would describe it. Return to Japanese animation of Wild in the Line. I, th- I think I might actually propose a, a season of some more of the more mind bending Japanese animations. Oh, maybe. there's plenty of that. <laughs> At some point, <laughs> yeah, so maybe that's something for down the line, but. Just, just promise we're not going to watch Urasoka Doji, please. No, let's not do that. No, um, we, have, we have some self-respect. We do. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is news to me, but I'll take your word for it. Okay, so thank you very much for that. We always appreciate hearing from you. No, really, we'd like to hear from you more. So please do. If you have any thoughts on this podcast or any of our other episodes, contact us by email: podcast at fudsandfilm Facebook, facebook.com slash fuzzonfilm, or most common ways on Twitter, twitter.com slash fuzzonfilm. And if you have time to leave us a wee review on iTunes or something, that'd be fantastic, thank you. Just for self-aggrandizement, obviously. Um, that's it from us just now. We will be back in the 20th of this month for our intermission podcast, and we're actually planning at the moment to be back towards the back end of the year with the rest of the directors under the Studio Ghibli banner. But for this evening, that is all. I have been Drew, Scott was Scott, Bye. and Craig was Craig. I offer each and every one of you my heart. Offer not valid in states of Iowa and Idaho. <laughs> also, Craig has, no- <laughs> <laughs> Craig has no heart. Oh, that's, a bit, that's a bit hard. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, soul, soul. It's no yeah, soul, he's got right. a heart. I'm not going to argue with that, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Please get in touch with us. Let us know what you think. And until then, take care of yourselves and each other. Bye-bye. Bye.